We shouldn't get too carried away. We shouldn't declare World War III or an alien invasion yet, but I think this is a, a meaningful thing to watch and clearly foreign intelligence is interested not only in the data that they might be gathering with these balloons, but also in seeing how provoking us might play out. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how goes it? Things are okay. I haven't really left my apartment in days on end because I am really on the deadline with the book. But the good news is it's out for pre-order on Amazon. So anyone who's interested, it's called The Canceling of the American Mind. And, and you can grab it there. It'll be out in October. So this is an early shout out. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. It's exciting. What does it mean to get to that point? So what are you doing? So you say you're getting ready to get the book out. Like, so what does that, what does that mean? So our full manuscript needs to be in their hands in two weeks. And that means, you know, checking every fact and making sure that everything is spick and span. And then it goes through a few rounds of proofreading. And there have been some shortages with like supplies in the publishing industry and printing has been a bit of a disaster. So we're trying to get as ahead of it as possible. But, you know, there's some fun stuff that's happening too, of like working on the cover and, and, um, getting quotes from people reviewing the book. And so it's, we're, we're moving from the terrible <laughs> portion of just never leaving my house to some of the more fun aspects. So what is the cover going to look like? Do you know yet? Yeah, it's on the Amazon listing. It's like an American flag with X's instead of the stars and like the, the stripes are falling. It's very cool. I'm into oh, wow. it. I think it's, I think it's cool. It's nice and modern Amazing. and fresh. Yeah. And I'm no expert, but October seems like a really good time to release a book from what I gather, but- That's uh, what they tell us. I'm just trusting the process. Great. Well, congratulations. I'm going to go check Thank it you. out. I haven't been on on the Twitter in the past 24 hours, but I, I hear it's out there. So I'm going to go look at it. Uh, so, okay. We've got a couple of quick announcements. One is we are dropping a an episode of this new podcast that we have called Sweat the Technique on our feed uh, for Lost Debate this Sunday. So you could just hear one of the episodes for it. This is an episode where I interview this guy named Doug Lamov, who's like probably the most foremost expert on what it means to be a great teacher, but he's also coached great coaches out there. I think I've talked about him in previous podcasts. Uh, that episode will be on this feed, you could listen to it. And if you like it, you can go to our regular feed for uh, Sweat the Technique and listen to our first two episodes. Our second episodes with this woman named Kelly McGonigal from Stanford University who writes a book called The Upside of Stress. And she talks about all how about how stress can be a good thing if you think about it the right way. So Sweat the Technique, wherever you get your podcasts, that episode will be on our feed on Sunday. And then we've got a special episode on Tuesday where I interview Rick Hess from the American Enterprise Institute, all about just where we've gone in this sort of thing we call education reform. And he gives this amazing history over the, of the past few decades of education policy and practice and where we are today. And so I think the audience is gonna love that. And then we'll be back with a regular episode on Thursday. Uh, Ricky, should we encourage our audience to send some voicemails in here? Yes, our voicemail number is 321-200-0570. And in celebration of President's Day, tell us who your favorite president is and why. And also, if you have comments about the show, let us know. We're here. Mm. We're listening. Awesome. Oh, one more announcement. The Hardest Step, uh, our, one of our podcasts about second chances, has an interview with Washington State's first formerly incarcerated lawmaker, Tara Simmons. So you can go to the Hardest Step feed to hear that, too. Wow, so many new shows on The Lost Debates. But... Without further ado, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to tackle the growing and alarming trend of deep fake technology, in particular deep fake porn. Uh, we then interview Jonathan Rausch about who is really to blame for the inability to adopt nuclear power. He has this long article in The Atlantic that he walks us through. But first, we have some hysteria over UFOs. Nope, it's not a bird, it's not a plane, it's a Chinese spy balloon. We are learning more about the Chinese spy balloon that flew across the United States last week. U.S. military shoots down another object. A different object every day. New questions for the White House about those UFOs. There are growing bipartisan calls for President Biden to address the nation. About the recent rash of aerial objects that have been shot down by U.S. fighter jets. As the hours go on, uh, it gets more and more mysterious. So let's start with the first object 
that started this whole thing. On January 28th, an object entered Alaskan airspace, and it was later concluded to be a Chinese balloon. I mean, we're talking about a massive, massive object. They say it was about the size of three buses, and it was flying at about an altitude of 60,000 to 65,000 feet, so it was, you could, it was visible from the ground in certain respects. Then by February 4th, the U.S. shot it down when it reached the oceans off of South Carolina. And obviously, for our audience, if you were paying attention during that period of time, there was a lot of commentary. There were politicians pointing their guns up at the sky. I mean, it was not necessarily America at its best. And well, it also seems the fact that clear. it took us that long was not necessarily America at its best either. We waited to go from coast to coast well, before we finally got it, before it could capture intelligence off of the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, well, I wasn't. I wasn't expecting this debate this early in this conversation. Well, but I think there was. Do you want? Do you want the U.S. government shooting down something that's the size of three buses and having that debris fall on the, on the heads of Americans? Well, that's. We ended up shooting it down on the opposite coast. I think it probably floated over something at some point. I'm not sure, but I understand the concern about the optics of knowing that a. a very enemy state is floating a large mysterious intelligence gathering device from January 28th when it was floating over Alaska all the way to February 4th when it had already crossed and gathered whatever it was gathering. I mean, I understand the frustration. I wasn't pointing my gun at the the sky, but, you know, I understand the frustration. But I think everybody's an armchair intelligence officer when they want to be, or armchair foreign policy expert. I don't know what the government knew, right? So the U.S. government could have been collecting intelligence on this object, and actually it could have been helpful once they identified what it was to let it do what it was doing for a while so that we could figure out what kind of technology they had. And the U.S. also said that they wanted to maximize the opportunity to recover the debris, which... I just, I guess I'm one of those people who just trust them when they say stuff like this. Because what's the alternative that they wanted the Chinese to spy on us? Like, like they knew what we knew and way more. So my sense was, all right, they knew something about this device by the by the point that they were able to identify it. And for whatever reasons they have, they decided that it was in the best interest either of American safety or of the information gathering purposes that they had to let it keep going. Because when people are saying like there's some kind of conspiracy, and what's the conspiracy that the U.S. I'm not wants saying the it's Chinese? a conspiracy. Yeah, I know, but there there are those those theories. That's straw manning the, because there are yeah. people like me who think that maybe we waited for quite a while um, to shoot it down. But I would say if that was the case, then just floating things across our our airspace was a good way to go. Then we wouldn't have seen quite a change in strategy from our intelligence services. Following this big balloon and all of the fuss that and commotion that it caused, um, on the 9th, another unidentified flying object was identified in Alaska. The next day, it was shot down pretty much instantaneously, much smaller. But basically, what we did is we changed the threshold for how large of a thing would set off our radar and and make us investigate it. And so then all of a sudden, we realized like, oh, there are quite a few smaller than three buses, but things up there in the sky. So that one was shot down. Then another one showed up that same day, shot down the following day over Canada. And then by the 11th, a fourth object was found over Montana. And the next day it was shot down. So we took a way different strategy to the next three. Um, Admittedly, they were smaller, but we don't, we don't yet have confirmation that they were spy balloons or what exactly they were. So there's a lot of, are they aliens? Is this the next invasion or is it World War III? Have there been smaller things just floating up in the sky all this time? And we didn't know because it wasn't setting off our radar. So there, there are a lot of questions and a lot of things we don't know. I think um, hopefully we'll get more information from the White House, from intelligence services, and that can quell some of the frustration over why we waited so long to shoot down the first one. But yeah. Yeah. And it's worth noting that a lot of those other objects that you talked about, like obviously, like you mentioned, we don't know what those are yet, but you know, some of those were also shot down over bodies of water. Like I think the last one that they shot down was shot down over Lake Huron. One of the previous ones was mm-hmm. shot down over Canada. So I think like if we're, if you're tracking the explanation from the U.S. government, which is safety was one of the concerns, that still makes some sense to me that that would that 
the later incidents are consistent with the first explanation. But on the, the UFO explanation, the alien explanation, there was this interesting back and forth between a general who's the head of the U.S. North American Aerospace Defense Command and somebody questioning him about, hey, is this, have we ruled out aliens essentially? Let's go to this clip. Have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials? And if so, why? Because that is what everyone is asking us right now. And thanks for the question, Helene. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figure that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America uh, with an attempt to identify it. So obviously, I mean, people are having a field day with these types of comments. Obviously, he's just saying, I don't know. Um, he's probably having a bit of fun with the reporter, too. But on a more serious note, the former CIA director was asked, Mike Morrill, was asked about the first balloon, the Chinese balloon, and he gave his explanation as to what he thinks the Chinese may be up to. I'm thinking that we may have three different reasons here why the Chinese may be doing this. Um, one is obviously intelligence collection of sensitive military sites. But I think a second is political. Uh, we fly many um, surveillance flights, intelligence collection flights, not over China, but near China. Uh, the Chinese can't do that. They don't have military bases close enough to the United States. So I think they're sending a message here that, look, we can spy on you too. And then finally, I think there may be a military purpose. We can't discount that. They may be considering that should we ever go to war, that this might be a way to deliver weapons. Well, so I think that's a pretty sober account here. And I think it's important to note mm -hmm. that we spy on them. They spy on us. I think what was alarming about this was the size of of this thing. Like when I think people think of like a hostile foreign nation sending something the size of three buses over their heads, that's a lot different than, you know, the fact that they may be like hacking into your Gmail yeah. account or something. And so I think it was a, a bit more terrifying than this sort of constant threat that we have on the internet. Yeah, and it's certainly a, a lot more tangible to day-to-day -day Americans and caused enough outrage to um, really change the approach from the White House. Let's hear an explanation here about why they ended up taking a more defensive approach in the latter balloons. U.S. officials couldn't say today whether these objects belong to China or to some other government or even to a company or an individual. They say President Biden made the decision to have them all shot down because they could not rule out the possibility that they were being used for spying. So that's a marked change in the way that we went about this. And one interesting theory, though, about why there might be these smaller um, additional balloons that don't seem to have the same capabilities as this enormous thing that they floated over coming afterwards is potentially, and this is just a theory that some senior officials have floated, is that this could be something from Russia or China trying to understand the sensitivity of our radar systems and how quickly we would respond to something like this. So these could be completely unhelpful to them in terms of data collection in the spying sense, but helpful in terms of understanding what our capabilities are now. Yeah. And there's reporting that something happened early in the Biden administration where they upped the sensitivity of our radars. And according to NPR, U.S. officials have now confirmed that at least three times during the Trump administration and one time earlier in the Biden administration, they identified Chinese balloons over U.S. airspace. So this is not the first time. This is the first time I think it's reached this kind of level of public awareness. The Chinese claim, now that this is, take this with a grain of salt, they claim that the U.S. has sent 10 unsanctioned balloons into Chinese airspace. The U.S. denies that. And, you know, Morrill is at least saying, and he hasn't been in the CIA for a while, that we get close enough because of our our air race capacity, where we don't need to do that. I have no idea. And once again, this gets to the fact that this the tricky thing about intelligence and why this public debate is really confusing to a lot of people, and it's easy for demagoguery, mm. is by its nature, intelligence requires the US government to hold back certain information. And China perhaps knows that. There, there are all this, there's all this speculation as to, you know, this is a pretty sophisticated country and in its intelligence gathering. Why would it send something so visible, visible to the average person over American airspace? One theory, and I have no idea whether this is true or not, is they wanted to test how we would handle it. And 
under that theory, we're failing miserably. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, getting back into our partisan corners, fighting publicly, demanding our intelligence community share more information, which if you're China is perfect because they want to know as much as possible about what we know about what they did. So I would say we haven't passed this phase. And then if it's aliens, really not passing it because we're Well, we know for sure the first one was not aliens. So let's just make that abundantly clear. Well, the Chinese didn't make it easy. Like at at various points, they were apologizing for it. Then they were getting, you know, aggressive in their clapback of us. And then they were threatening us. And it was like they couldn't get their story straight either on this, which didn't help. But I I renew my point that I'm pro extraterrestrial invasion of the United States uh, or this world. I think we can use a yeah. little help. If they I don't get even here think first, I'm going to engage with that us. the second time around. I already <laughs> responded to that once. That's as much air as I'm going to allow that theory to have. I just want to say, if they get here first, they're smarter than us. Maybe they're more enlightened than us. I know intelligence and, and enlightenment don't always go hand in hand, but I'm hoping they do. Maybe, but that would be a pretty remarkably unsophisticated way to come from some distant universe or galaxy, solar system, whatever. I clearly did not do well in astronomy class, but you know, like to come here and be like, let's just float some tiny little balloons on visible to the naked eye over America with antennas. Like, I don't think, I don't think this would be their method. Yeah. Well, I think what we've learned here is that the U.S., isn't necessarily the most sophisticated at knowing what's in its airspace and what the growth of things like drone technology, who the hell knows what these other objects were. It could have been like the frat brothers who bought like the, the wrong drone and let it float away or something. Like who knows like what these things were that they shot down later on. They could be totally harmless or they could be foreign governments. And I think that's where the well, public is a bit frustrated is like, we should know what's in our airspace. Yeah. And I also think if it was as simple as they shot it down, then it's like, oh, it's just some weird drone that some guy was flying around. We would have heard about that by now. I do feel that would be the easiest yeah. thing to come out and say, oh, this is a false alarm. And we, we're yet to hear that. So I think we shouldn't get too carried away. We shouldn't declare World War Three or an alien invasion yet. But I think this is a, a meaningful thing to watch. And clearly foreign intelligence is interested not only in the data that they might be gathering with these balloons, but also in seeing how provoking us might play out. And, and that's notable in a world where hacking might be one of the most um, cost effective and efficient ways to go against an enemy that this is a completely different and weirdly antiquated stance that they're taking and strategy that they're testing out. So I'm, I'm, I will be interested to follow this. I have a feeling that we'll be doing a follow-up at some point on this story. Right. Needless to say, as we close this out, there's all sorts of sophisticated satellite technology. So Mm -hmm. merely being able to see what's going on can't be enough here because the satellite should be able to get you pretty close to understand. I mean, but I guess there could be way more high powered cameras, you know, who the hell knows. Once again, this is what it gets to is like, it's so weird to even speculate on some of this stuff because it's Mm -hmm. so far beyond our depth. It's even beyond Mike Morrill's depth because he's been out of the CIA for a bit. Like even the people who are in it, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked in foreign policy in the government since 2010. You know, so it's like, like all these people commenting on it could be this, it could be that and all that, like we're doing it. It's fun. But in the end, this is why, this is why I'm an institutionalist. <laughs> I'm like, all right, if the government tells me I'm, maybe I'm too trusting on this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'm gonna... we've, we've gone 20 rounds on this, but if the government's like, Hey, here's, here's my explanation as to why we let it cross over. And I can't really come up with a sinister reason why they do that. And I'm just like, all right, I trust you. Like I, I trust your explanation. Move on. All right, well, let's move on to something maybe more sinister, uh, this whole phenomenon of deep fakes. Mm -hmm. Now, I am not a young person, Ricky, and even when I was young, I wasn't much of a gamer. So I'm going to need you, and I I suspect you're not a gamer either, but you certainly are younger than I am. Could you explain to me this whole controversy uh, involving deep fakes in the gaming community? Yeah, I have no um, special Gen Z knowledge here. I I think it surprises no one that I'm not a Twitch watcher, but um, Atrioc is a Twitch streamer, which I guess is like you you stream yourself playing video games because for some reason that's entertaining to people. So he shared his screen and had his internet browsing open 
on his um, Twitch stream. And so you could see what he was looking at in other tabs. And one of the things that he was looking at is a deep fake porn site with videos showing different Twitch streamers with their um, faces essentially digitally placed on other porn videos with, with porn stars, completely unrelated people. But it effectively depicts people without their consent having sex and this guy was watching it for what he says was just out of like morbid curiosity and he's since apologized but on that website there were a variety of different female twitch streamers who were featured including one girl who goes by the screen name qt cinderella who was really devastated by her image being used without her consent, without her knowledge and having to then go through the, not only the emotional process of dealing with that, but then also the financial process of trying to have that removed, even though she had nothing to do with it in the first place. And she released a statement that um, really goes to show how much that impacted her. And it should not be a part of my job to have to pay money to get this stuff taken down. It should not be part of my job to be harassed, to see pictures of me nude spread around. It should not be something that is found on the internet. It shouldn't be. That's That shouldn't be a part of my job. And the fact that it is, is exhausting. Yeah, this is obviously devastating stuff and nobody should have to go through this. And we'll get to the you know the, the legal part of this. This stuff should be illegal everywhere. I, I just don't get it. Like, I don't get why we've allowed this to get to this point. You know, I, I mean, I understand we've got you know, 80 year olds in the Senate who have no idea what any of this technology is. They don't even know what Facebook is. You know, we've seen those hearings before. They're yeah, so I mean, slow. To we can't be get fair, anything young done. people, I, it wasn't really on my radar as something that was immediately a concern either. So I think this is like the first real tangible human example where we're seeing this domestically, like yeah. really impact someone and then come forward. So I think this well, will be I, an impetus for change. People. Yeah, like this is this is the recent most high profile one. I mean, the term deep fake was it's been around for a bit since 2017. Apparently, there was a Reddit user by that name who coined the term. And obviously it's it's picked up in in recent time. There was I was reading about there was even a, a teacher who somebody had created a deep fake about a teacher mm -hmm. who got fired, uh, you know, porn deep fake. It seems like some crazy percentage of this is, you may have that number. As of 2019, 96% of the technology was being utilized in pornographic instances. And 99% of the people whose faces were being used were female celebrities. So it's definitely, um, at, at least in 2019 at that point in time has a pretty singular use case. But as we'll see, yeah. there's tons of others. Yeah, there's a, there's a saying out there in media that sort of a lot of media innovations actually come from the porn industry. And this would certainly be an example of that. You know, we at Lost Debate are just obsessed with artificial intelligences, uh, like the impact this is gonna have on society. I think there, there are fads, like obviously we did some segments on the metaverse and all that, which I continue mm. to believe like some version of that is gonna be important down the line. But to me, this, this is where the cliche is correct. Like artificial intelligence is and will increasingly revolutionize so many different aspects of society and we talked about this, you know, we're talking about this in, in the context of porn, but this is this goes way beyond that. There are videos on the internet of Barack Obama calling Donald Trump a complete dipshit that isn't true. Mark Zuckerberg bragging about having total control of billions of people da data. Jon Snow apologizing for the end of Game of Thrones. So this stuff is everywhere. There are even some mm -hmm. ads out there. Um, I think one with the Manning brothers or Peyton Manning that were, you know, they're using the deep fake technology like with consent. In, in those ads, and obviously this could affect our democracy. There's this professor, Danielle Citron from University of Virginia. She's a law professor, and she goes through like some pretty frightening scenarios about how people could use this technology on the eve of an election to tip the election. So imagine the night before an election, there's a deep fake showing one of the major party candidates gravely sick. The deep fake could tip the election and shake our sense that elections are legitimate. And this stuff is easy to create, Ricky. Apparently you don't need programming skills at all to create these things. You can create it for free in less than 30 seconds on some of these sites. I'm not encouraging anybody to do that, but this is, this is alarmingly easy. Yeah, I mean, this is really frightening stuff, I think, in terms of just personal defamation, manipulation, and then also just the larger implications of disinformation, like she said. Um, even the flip side of that is 
is weird to think about because, you know, in a, in a future world, you could say something really stupid as a political candidate and then I be like, I that. never said I that. That's a that. deep fake. Like I never said I could shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> um, I don't know what you're talking about, yeah. but um, yeah, this is something that even the U S department of Homeland security has released an entire memo about. Um, and they're saying that detection methods and improving our detection technologies. There's, there's one place called style G a N where you can um, detect of deep fake, deep fake technologies being used, but theoretically it could get more advanced and circumvent that. The Department of Homeland Security says making better technologies will be a, quote, all hands on deck situation and that we need to shift from detecting what is fake to bolstering what is true, um, which is a little cryptic to me. But mm. by and large, they're saying the biggest thing is going to be educating society and educating citizens about this threat. I think following up on our civics course conversation um, that you were against more civics education this would be oh. a pretty good uh, this <laughs> would be a pretty good use case that in a civics class position. well i, I, I had more nuanced position than that but that's okay uh yeah no i agree like there, there it is amazing to me that you without a doubt there are gonna be politicians saying actual things and then saying mm -hmm. it's deep fake uh there's a bunch of bills out there people trying to ban this kind of stuff at the state level we need more action at the federal level because Honestly, like you need federal plus international conventions on this kind of stuff yeah. because this stuff could be created anywhere. And there's, you know, there there are obviously like ways in which you, the deep fake stuff could be cracked down on using existing laws. Like if you're trying mm -hmm. to harass somebody, you're infringing copyright, you're defaming somebody, um, you're trying to extort them, but that's not enough. Like we need, a, if I were crafting yeah. a law here, I would I would start with saying, if you don't have somebody's consent to create a deep fake, the presumption is you cannot create it. And then the debate becomes yeah. uh, about parody in the political context and the First Amendment. And and whatever, I would let the courts figure out what is the line on the First Amendment parody of politicians using deep fake. But what I, if I were a sitting justice, nobody's asking me to do this, I would be saying, all right, maybe I allow it in that context if it's obvious it's parody. And if it's not obvious it's parody, then because the parody exception could be like they could say that was somebody could, you know, using deep fake against this gamer, for example, could be like, oh, I was just doing it for parody. So you got to be careful about these parody exceptions. Uh, I think obvious is a, a strong word there. I I have a sense that looking into the long term, this will probably develop the same contours of defamation law where public figures have less of a recourse and it's a matter of like willful and um, malicious intent, I would say. But yeah, I think I agree that there has to be some, some serious thinking here about how free expression in the first amendment relates to this issue. Um, there've been some piecemeal attempts here to, to regulate um, deep fakes already. California, Virginia and Texas to their credit have, um, taken action. Virginia extended its revenge porn law to protect against deep fakes. In Texas, it's criminalized if you're interfering in an election. And in California, it's illegal to make deep fake porn and public office candidates can sue if somebody is clearly trying to mess with an election outcome. Um, Maryland, New York, and Massachusetts are all talking about figuring out how to extend their existing laws to protect against this. And right now there is a good deal that you can accomplish with civil suits on this basis, even if you're not in one of those states. Um, you can claim extortion, harassment, copyright infringement, emotional distress, defamation, any of those. And my assumption would be that courts would be, even if you don't have a strict law in the books, pretty sympathetic to that, given how sensitive and how life destroying this can be. But I think hopefully instances like this are a warning to people to take, not take things at face value quite as much. Um, and an idea that I have that I haven't really heard floated around too much is I think this should be built like the detection devices. If I were Elon Musk right now, I'd be working on how to build that into Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like, and just make sure that anything that is detected as a deep fake just can't even be on my platform. Yeah, this is the arms race, right? It gets to the chat GPT and the GPT zero side of things. There's an arms yeah. race going on between the technologies to 
to utilize AI and create new things and the technologies to try to discern and stop it in yeah. certain nefarious cases. And that's going to be defining over the next decade plus. Like that, that arms race between those two types of technologies is going to determine a lot about how people live their lives. Like whether you're a kid yeah. handing in a paper in a school or you're the teacher in that school who somebody's creating a deep fake about like this stuff is just quickly seeping into aspects yeah. of everyday life in this country. Now, a couple of practical tips uh, about how to, at least according to the current version of this technology, how you might be able to see if something is a deep fake. If there's blurring evident in the face, not apparent elsewhere in the video, if there's a change of skin tone near the edge of the face, double chins, double eyebrows, double eyebrows. I just can't even imagine what that looks like. Um, whether the face gets blurry when it's partially obscured, lower quality sections throughout the same video, box-like shapes, cropped effects, blinking, like unnatural blinking, choppy sentences, varying tone inflection, weird phrasing. Uh, so these are just some of the things to look out for. Obviously, yeah. the technology is going to get better and better and better. And some of the things I just said might not be true for much longer. It might be harder and harder to even determine whether this is deep fake technology. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just sitting here kind of pondering a question in my mind because I'm very... First Amendment oriented, as everyone knows, and very free speech oriented, including extending parodying a public figure. I mean, but there's an interesting question here to me about using your First Amendment rights to kind of co-opt someone else's speech, which is mm -hmm. a really strange concept. And I'm I'll be interested to see how the court grapples with this. I imagine that there, there will be like a Supreme Court question here for Without sure because you're inf Without almost infringing on someone else's first amendment right by using their right against them weirdly if that makes sense i don't know it, i mean it, it, you raise such an interesting point my sense is the court is going to want because this actually is non-ideological i hope i mean we could make anything yeah, i don't think partisan. it is partisan we can make anything all. maybe ideological is the wrong word but partisan We'll but California, find a way to Virginia, and Texas are the three states that have made yeah. a move. Those you couldn't have more across the board collection of states. We can there. make anything in this country partisan. I hope we don't make this one partisan. I think we will. My hope is that we just find a common sense. Way. Like this is the kind of thing where you just sit down with the average person. They're like, "This is wrong. Uh, we should find a way to stop it." And yes, I can imagine cases where it's important to protect the right of people to do some version of this. Uh, although, like. The thing I would be asking if I were on the court is, is there another way to mm -hmm. get this message across without using this technology? Because the sort of standard the court uses, is it viewpoint discriminatory or not? So if you just say, hey, you can't use deep fake technology to, to, in general, like without somebody's consent. Well, that's not viewpoint con discriminatory. That applies to liberals. It applies to conservatives alike, et cetera. So those types of restrictions can actually potentially stand like a good example is like in my house right now if i wanted to like get a bullhorn at 3 a.m and scream out some political message and the local ordinance in the town says you can't do that that is not a violation of the first amendment because it's the law was not passed to try to stop me from saying whatever my political message it was it was passed to allow people mm -hmm. to sleep and i have a reasonable alternative for getting that message across so my hope is that the court and everybody else, you know, comes to their senses and Congress, for God's sakes, acts on this and just says, all right, like very simple, should be a very simple law. Let's ban non-consensual uses of this, except in cases where I can't even imagine, but maybe there's like important cases to protect. And that's it. Full stop. Well, as a final segment here, I did an interview the other day with Jonathan Rausch, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of the recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And also, just a side note, highly recommend his 1993 book, Kindly Inquisitors. It was really fundamental to sparking my passion for free speech and I think super important culturally. He came out recently uh, with a an article in The Atlantic entitled The Real Obstacle to Nuclear Power in which he grapples with his understanding going in that this was 
pretty much predominantly a story of environmental activists taking down a, a great power source, but also comes to realize through his investigation that there's quite a lot more at play in terms of whether the industry is ready to step up into the spot that he would like them to step into. And it was a really interesting interview. So nuclear powers kind of breaks the pattern and assumption that when there is a superior technology, inevitably there will be widespread adoption in the future. But that hasn't been as much the case with nuclear as you discussed in your piece. But as much as we hear that it's environmentalists and activists who are keeping it down and kind of keeping the lid on nuclear power, can you tell me a little bit about why you think the industry is not helping its own case? Well, this is uh, this is an article I wrote for the current issue of The Atlantic, and I went into it kind of expecting to write a diatribe about how environmentalists shot themselves in the foot because nuclear power is basically carbon-free. It is extremely high density, meaning it uses very little land, very few resources. Plants will run for 50 to 70 years. We need it for global warming. And I thought, gee, you know, those environmentalists really blew it. And I discovered I was wrong about that. I do think the environmental movement blew it. They should have supported nuclear power instead of opposing it. But that turned out not to be the real problem. The, the real problem was it starting in the 70s. And then ever since, the nuclear power industry has been unable to build reactors that were commercially and economically viable. They just couldn't build them on time and within budget. And you could do that in the 70s, you know, when a utility could just pass the slowness and the high cost on to the ratepayers. But you can't do that in 2022. So I realized the problem was really more on the commercial side. And so you point to a major problem being prohibitive bureaucracy here. And one engineer you quoted said it was akin to building a pyramid point down. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that's meant for the industry? Yeah, nuclear power is probably the safest form of energy ever invented. The total number of people who have died as a result of a nuclear accident, uh, radiation accident, is either zero or one, except for Chernobyl, which sounds like a big except, but it's not because it was a terrible reactor. You know, it was a communist reactor. Ours are not like that. So it's very safe. The problem with the existing technology is not that it's unsafe, but that making it safe is very expensive. Mm -hmm. You had to, because it's cooled by water, um, the water has to stay liquid. But at high temperatures, which is where you're running a nuclear plant, the water will turn to steam. So you have to keep the water under pressure and you have to pump it with a lot of, a lot of pumps. If the electricity fails, the pumps can fail, the pressure can fail, the water can boil off, the reactor can melt down, you get an accident. Well, you can prevent that, but you need multiple redundant systems, and then you need heavy containment structures, and that makes the plant expensive to build and very massive. And the more massive it gets, then the, the bigger the utility wants to make it in order to get its money back. So the plants get bigger and bigger and harder and more expensive to build. And the thing then just kind of sags and implodes of its own weight. So an inevitable question here is about the disasters in Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima. But in your view, to what extent is nuclear power struggling to be adopted just because it's not been rebranded in a, a positive way in the eyes of the public? Public acceptance has been a big problem, has been ever since an accident at Three Mile Island in 1979. No one was hurt in that accident. It was actually a minor blip, but it scared people. Chernobyl, of course, scared them even more. So one of the things that the industry knows that it needs to do is build public confidence with a new set of technologies that don't melt down if there's a problem with the electricity or with the systems. And there are a whole bunch of technologies now that can do that. Some use water, other use other coolants, like, for example, liquid salts. But they have in common that they're walk-away safe meaning if everything goes wrong, they just shut themselves down. So those are the technologies that we're looking to perfect and build now. 
And so when you were spending time with these companies, beyond just trying to change public perception, a lot of them were also changing some of the core ways that the technology works. Um, So I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about what sort of innovations you think might be on the horizon? Well, there are two kinds of innovations to think about, Ricky. There's the technological innovations, which is most of what people talk about, but which to me are not the most interesting or important. The tech innovations are things like um, alternatives to water cooling, things like um, using fluoride, liquid fluoride salt, which is what a company I profiled called Kairos is using. And it's small modular reactors. These are much smaller reactors. They fit in basically a warehouse size building. You can use one of them to power a steel plant. You can chain them, you know, five or 10 at a time if you want to power a whole city, that kind of thing. So all of that is exciting. But, and that's what gets all the attention. But my article goes a different direction. It says the technology has never been the real challenge. The real challenge is commercial. It's the business process. Mm -hmm. It's can you get to a point where you can manufacture these plants at a reasonable cost? And to do that, you're going to have to have mass production. Right now, building a nuclear power plant is like building an airport. Everyone is specific to the site. It's designed from scratch. It's absolutely huge. It's going to cost tens of billions of dollars. It's going to come come in way over the budget. It's going to take 15 years, almost a generation to complete. Well, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So you need a new business process that allows you to get an assembly line going, to manufacture small plants that you can then divide into parts and send on trucks and then assemble on the site and do that 100 times, 200 times all over the world. If you can do that, then you can get the cost down so you're fully competitive with oil and gas. More important, you're fully competitive with wind and solar. You don't replace wind and solar, but you complement it. And the two, it turns out, work beautifully together. They're much better together than they are separately. But that all depends on having an industry that can reinvent its business process so that it can move to a mass production model. Um, And that's the real challenge. And that's why the industry is taking talent from outside the industry, places like SpaceX, Mm -hmm. which is figure out how to do that in the space industry. Well, if the space industry can do it, the hope is maybe the nuclear industry can do it, too. Absolutely. And so do you see the solution here being totally a function of the free market or do you think it requires some sort of governmental investment in nuclear? Like what how do you see this coming together, if if at all? Got to have a government component. Um, there's there's no way around that because we're talking about a new technology, and you know the first one of these things that you make, the first ten are going to be extremely expensive. They're the first off the assembly line, so you're going to need customers, and that means you're going to need some insurance, and you're need, going to need some government support to make the things affordable at first. But the notion here is, as with other technologies that have had government support. You subsidize them at first to get them over that initial cost hump, Mm -hmm. but you don't do that forever. Government has, in fact, been doing that. Three administrations now, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, and Congress on a bipartisan basis have been quietly but regularly funding the advanced nuclear industry. has not been controversial. No one's drawn attention to it. That's just fine. But we're going to need more of that kind of government support uh, to get that initial momentum. And so tell me, are are there any players on the international stage that you think are doing a better job in terms of rolling out this farm power? Yeah, we don't really know yet. The biggest worldwide supplier of big conventional nuclear plants is Russia. And that is not very good news because Russia uses its energy leverage to subjugate countries that it goes into and um, to try to try to use foreign policy influence. China is working very hard on the same technologies as the U.S. is on more or less the same timelines. The U.S. system is, because it's America, it's more fragmented, it's decentralized. We have dozens of different companies working on different technologies at different stages. That could be a plus or it could be a minus, depending how it works out. The Chinese and the other governments are working on a more centralized model. So we will have to see, but it is a global race. 
And have you noticed any positive trends, maybe generationally with younger people being further removed from some of the disasters in recent memory? Or are you, how do you feel about younger people's sentiment about nuclear power? It's a very interesting point, Ricky, one that I wish I'd had more room for in, in my article. Yeah, there's been a generational transformation and it's driving the change that's happening now. People who are now in their 20s and 30s and even early 40s did not grow up with headlines about Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. They grew up with headlines about global climate change, the need for getting um, to away from carbon energy sources as quickly as possible. And they bring that sense of urgency to this mission. So we've seen a whole generation come in now with a real sense of purpose about reinventing the nuclear industry to make it viable. And that's new. Now, the downside of that is we kind of had to skip a generation. Nuclear became so unviable, we stopped building plants altogether for an entire generation in the United States. We lost a lot of technical know-how. We lost a lot of engineering talent. It just flowed out to other industries. So we're having to rebuild. Um, but the good news is we've got a generation now, your generation, that is very motivated to do that. Mm, absolutely. And my final question for you here kind of goes back to the basics a little bit. But for listeners who aren't as keyed in uh, into why this technology is so promising, can you just clarify for them what's at stake here and why widespread adoption would be so consequential? Nuclear power is virtually carbon-free. There is enough uranium around to fuel our energy needs for several hundred years. It is the safest or at least tied for the safest energy source that's ever been invented, especially compared to fossil fuels, which dump dangerous waste in the air that kills, you know, a million people a year. And the technology is here now. Unlike fusion, it's not always a generation away. We know how to do it. So it works beautifully in conjunction with wind and solar. Sun doesn't shine all the time. The wind doesn't blow all the time. You either have to overbuild all those windmills and cover the landscape with them and build lots of batteries to store extra power. None of that makes any sense. Or you can pair those technologies with nuclear power so that uh, when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, you can supplement it and bring online nuclear. Um, they work beautifully together. So I think people who are serious about global warming now understand it's so much easier to get where we need to go in the next 20 years with a nuclear component. It might be impossible without a nuclear component. So now the question is, can the nuclear power industry get its act together fast enough to help solve this problem? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for writing this article, because I think it's it definitely challenged a lot of my preconceptions as well and my sense that that the environmentalists are almost entirely at fault here. So I, I hope that it spurs some, some food for thought and some meaningful change for sure. Well, thank you for having me. Your generation is, is the hope for this technology. Well, Ricky, good job on that interview. And, and thank you to Jonathan Rausch. I think it's always great to, you know, shatter the image of the one villain. And I think in this case, I came in thinking, hey, there's this simple story around nuclear power, and he definitely complicated it. You know, funny story of Jonathan Rausch, I was a, a intern at the Brookings Institution in 2004 or something like that, like back in the day. And I get to the Brookings Institution over the summer, and my boss was this like just very suave Italian man named Pietro Nivola, and he was like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I've been waiting for you. Like, I've heard so much about you. By the way, I'm going to Sardinia for the summer, so here's a bunch of articles. Have fun this summer. So I had no boss all summer. So And then they plot me outside of Jonathan Rausch's office. And I literally would just go to the office and just read the internet. This was like when blogs were a big thing. And uh, I would just sit there all day. And the only person in the entire Brookings Institution who would talk to me is Jonathan Rausch. He may not remember that. Maybe he does. But if you're listening, Jonathan, thank you for being nice to me. He was a very nice guy. Uh, and um, that was my first like professional experience. Probably explains a lot. Now I'm the boss going off to Sardinia, plopping articles on somebody's desk. And no one will talk to me. I'm just here alone in my apartment writing my book. No one's talking to me. I don't have Jonathan Rausch to keep me company. 
<laughs> yeah, I was just so fascinated by this guy. He just like disappeared. He was like, and he had just no sense of self-awareness. He's like, I've heard so much about you. I'm so excited. By the way, I'm gone tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's hear from Niall, who gave us a voicemail here, a listener, about our segment on Mr. Beast recently. Hey, uh, how's it going? My name is Niall. I'm from San Clemente, California, and I'm a filmmaker, uh, director, and YouTuber. And I'm calling about the Mr. Be- the Mr. Beast um, portion that you guys did. Yeah, I found it super interesting. I find myself mostly agreeing with Ricky most of the time, but here I agree with Robbie because Mr. Beast, if you look at the landscape of YouTube, basically everyone's kind of after their own gain. It's kind of like, look at me, get more attention. How can I get more subscribers, get more followers, get more people to care about what I'm making? Mr. Beast is probably the only person who's actually given back. You know, there are other examples, but he is definitely the extreme. He's probably the most generous. And, yes, it's flashy. Yes, it's in your face. But that's just the landscape of how you do things on social media as a whole and especially YouTube. You know, in every video, he's practically yelling because that's how you keep people's attention. And, yeah, I think the the morality of it is, I think is interesting. But I also think, like, what's the difference between him, you know, capitalizing, quote, unquote, on people's mishaps which is like them being blind. Like what's the difference between him and like a nurse, for example? What say you, Ricky? First, let's just talk about how he, he's moving in my direction. I want, I want to shout out Niall. And look, like it's okay if we haven't agreed in the past, but... You, but as long maturing. as you agree you're on maturing. Mr. Beast, then that's what you're, really he's, matters. I, I can hear it in his voice. He's maturing <laughs> no. and he's starting to see the light. That's what I got from this voicemail. Yeah, no, I'll be clear. I'm not I'm not definitively anti-Mr. Beast. I just, I understand how the optics are a little uncomfortable for some people. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think in the end, it's a net positive. So I'll give Mr. Beast denial that. You did a thing in that segment that you did with the gamers in this one, which is you said something rather judgy. And then you're like, oh, I I'm not judging. Judgy. You're like, I'm not judging. <laughs> I think- no, I'm only judgy of like weird Gen Z, like glued to the screen kind of habits. I, that, mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not judgy as much as just like culturally concerned that we're uh-huh. watching other people play video games. Like who would have seen that coming? That's, it's worse than just spending your whole day playing video games yourself. You're watching someone else play it. I don't know. I mean, yeah. to each their I own, agree. but I'm allowed to have opinions. You certainly are. That's uh, why I'm I, here. I, that's right. With these kinds of things, I think I try to separate. Well, it's not how I would spend my time, but I, a lot of people wouldn't spend their time the way I do. So it goes Yeah, no, ways. I'm just concerned about my generation, to be honest, and like how much time yeah. we're living vicariously through other people through screens. And I think both of them are kind of a test case of that. I think that's it. Thank you to our audience. Get out there and rate, review, and subscribe to The Lost Debate. We talked about Sweat the Technique. Get out there and check out that show. If you want to know anything about what I think about education, that's a good place to start. Um, it's specifically practice, educational practice. Next week, we're going to have this cool episode where I interview like the world's foremost expert on teaching people to surf. And so if you want a double dose of what I think about learning and also like an annoying lifestyle piece for me, it'll give you both of those things at the same time. Send in your voicemails, 321-200-0570. Post questions to us, you know, give us some provocative thoughts, like add any context to any segments that we've done before. Like we'd love to hear from you and we try to at least handle one voicemail an episode. Thank you very much and we'll talk to you next week. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. Mm-hmm.